Friends, let us pray. God of all, quiet in us any voice but your own, that by the power of the Spirit we might hear, and in hearing we might believe, and in believing we might act and make way for your new creation. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. Hear this amazing vision. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This week, a major streaming service released the fourth and final season of the binge-worthy series, The Man in the High Castle, based on the novel by Philip K. Dick. And it's been a favorite in the Sparks household ever since season one. It's a mind-bending, often very disturbing series set in the 1960s, and it envisions what post-World War II America might look like if the Allied forces had lost and the Axis powers had won. When the series begins, the victorious nations of Germany and Japan have divided the United States into two regions. The Greater Nazi Reich in the eastern part of the country and the Japanese Pacific States in the west. And they are separated 
by a neutral zone in the Rocky Mountains. Images from this bleak, dystopian world include New York City's Times Square emblazoned with the Nazi symbol and the Statue of Liberty draped with a red sash. San Francisco is under post-war Japanese rule. Shadows of parachutes float across the face of Mount Rushmore. There are surveillance systems in place everywhere to keep the population under control and in check. And the regime's strategy is chillingly effective over the series protagonists, Juliana Crane and her boyfriend, Frank. In season one, episode one, Juliana receives a baffling film reel with home movie-like grainy footage produced by the mysterious person known as the man in the high castle. And this film reel and many others like it are secretly circulating among the resistance. And these film reels show an alternative vision in an alternate universe, a vision of a better world, what it would look like if the US and its allies had won instead, the world that we are a little bit more familiar with. And throughout the series, it is this vision of an alternative future that gives them hope for something better. It's this vision that motivates the resistance to move forward. And the vision in the films is so powerful, the bad guys will do anything to destroy them. Now, of course, there is so much more to the series, and I will not give you any spoilers. And as we have just started watching the final season, I don't even know yet how it ends. But the story arc is all about the power of not just a dream, but the power of a radically new vision to evoke hope and transformation. It brings to mind the vision of God's radical newness in today's text from Isaiah. This newness on an unimaginable scale. You see, here is one of the most breathtakingly beautiful descriptions of the kingdom of God as God intends it. No doubt when Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, he knew these words. After all, he taught scripture in the temple. He read from the scroll of Isaiah itself. And the prophet presents a vision of newness for exiled people of Judah who were finally coming home. People that needed to reconstruct Jerusalem's ruins, to rebuild their demolished temple, and to restore the life of their nation. Today's text offers them a picture of God's promised kingdom where life is permeated with peace and plenty and harmony. In this peace-filled kingdom, ferocious wolf and docile lamb eat together side by side from the same feeding trough. 
Carnivorous lions turn vegetarian and let their former prey run free to frolic and play. All babies grow up to live full and prosperous lives, not just the ones born into affluence. They don't die prematurely from malnutrition or disease or addictions into which they were born. Homes remain in their owner's possession. No one receives a notice of foreclosure or eviction. Everyone earns enough to buy what they need, and there are no poor to support the habits of the rich. The farmer's fields produce record crops. They reach the farthest corners of the world, and no one goes hungry. Weeping and crying are things of the past. While celebrations of joy take their place, song and dance, birthday cake and ice cream, anniversary toasts and cheers, hugs and kisses, and the home team finally has a winning season. It's concrete and earthy, and on the surface at least, oh so gentle. Everyone gets along, everyone has what they need, everything thrives without difficulty. This newness is a glorious vision of promise for those whose everything has been destroyed, a hope-filled vision to hang on to for those who would endure hardship and persecution and suffering. A hope-filled vision not only about the life to come, but of God's intention for all of time, including the time right now. It is our human tendency to settle for less, so much less than God intends. We struggle to take this image of God's kingdom seriously. We will settle for a new gadget or gimmick or game, We'll settle for a new toy or technique or just a tweak around the edges. We'll settle for a new doodad or distraction. Or we'll settle for things just the way they are, a laissez-faire approach to the brokenness of the world as it is, rather than an investment in the world as it should be. We often settle for so much less than God's kingdom itself. Is it because it's so tame? After all, in God's imagining, predator and prey are palling around in both barn and pasture. Or do we pass over this vision of God's kingdom because we fundamentally know that despite appearances to the contrary, it is not tame? It is not bland. It is not undemanding. Do we close our eyes to this vision because deep down it frightens us? I wonder if God's sweeping newness unnerves us because it is too much to live up to, it is too challenging, it's too new, and we don't know what to do with it. We would rather settle for just a little newness but not too much. We often prefer to live with what we know, flawed and messy as it is. 
rather than venture into what we don't. So we settle for less. We settle for relationships not quite healed and reconciliation not quite completed. Sibling rising against sibling, citizen rising against citizen, nation rising against nation. No wolf and lamb feast side by side here. You see, that would require the wolf to abandon his aggressive and destructive ways and for the lamb to refuse to be a victim anymore. Yes, we settle. We settle for less than God's radical newness in the present. We pray your kingdom come, but do we really mean it in a way that costs us something? Scripture's good news is that God is not confined by human intention. God is not restricted by human cooperation, nor does God play the puppet master for humanity, pulling our strings to make us do whatever it is we should do. Instead, God gives us this promise to behold. God offers this mystery to contemplate where God reshapes and reorders all of life's untidiness into a new creation. God gives us a film with a new vision of an alternate world, but the footage is not grainy, nor is it amateurish. This film is in full living color with the sharpest of resolutions, the tightest of plots on a screen that's bigger than the skies overhead and the universe that we can't see. This film invites us to fix our gaze upon it and let the vision do its work on us. And our challenge today is to watch that film of God's radically new kingdom over and over again and to let it sink deeply into our bones and transform us from the inside out. For when we are the church at its best, at its most faithful, when we are most closely aligned with the holy imagination of God, this film leaps off the screen and into this world, into real life, with flesh and bones, living and active. Friends, I believe with all my heart that the church matters, both the big C church and this church, third church. And though it is very popular these days to distrust and disparage the institutional church, often with good reason, I was struck by something my religious history professor Chris Evans said. Chris is full of great wisdom, by the way. At a lecture a couple of years ago, he made the case for a strong and vibrant institutional church that faithfully enacts God's vision. He reminded the gathering that behind all of the great social movements in our country's history have been the persistence and resources of a strong institutional church. Without their work, these transformations would not happen. Free agents don't make a social movement, he said. 
We don't need more celebrities. We need more pastors and people who are doing the hard work for the long haul. In this season of yet another violent school shooting, this time at Saugus High School in California, we need God's vision of wolf and lamb reconciled with one another to leap off the screen and become real and tangible in this world. In this season where hearts ache over premature deaths of those we love from disease or domestic violence, we need a church that not only wipes tears and tenderly holds those who grieve with the assurance of God's unending presence. We also need a church that doggedly joins God's work of justice and peace so that such deaths are no more. In this season, where anger rages on football fields and where leaders with a moral compass are under attack, we need a church that creates new community. In this season of citywide and nationwide and worldwide economic and racial injustice, we need a church called to co-create God's alternative vision of flourishing for all. This is what we ask you to prayerfully consider and generously support with your resources on this Generosity Sunday. And although some may argue otherwise, when you get right down to the core, it is not about meeting the budget, not really. It's not about the building. It's not about the programs. It's not even about the personnel. Those are important, but not as ends unto themselves, but as the means to do what we believe God is calling us to be and to be who God is calling us to be. It is about joining God's transformation of the world as it is and making an investment in God's world as it should be. Think about it. We get to be part of what God is up to. We get to enact part of this amazing vision that scripture puts before us. We get to offer our community a space that is sacred and full of wonder. We get to offer food and fellowship to both body and soul. Do you have any idea how critical the work of our sextons is when we open up the food cupboard and when we serve Saturday meals? Do you have any idea of the kind of hospitality offered by our administrative staff when random people step into our building during the week looking for some ray of hope? We get to sing the music that touches the deepest parts of our being. We get to love and teach the wiggly and wonderful children of God. We get to accompany people through their most difficult times of loss. We get to march together in the pride parade. We get to speak out and give voice to those who need someone to advocate for justice on their behalf because that is part of God's vision too. This 
is why our giving matters. It's a vision of newness that Walter Brueggemann describes as outrageous and even poetic fantasy beyond our capacity and beyond our imagination. At the same time, he says, it is the power of God that is the gospel antidote to our fatigue and cynicism. For it is the dream, the vision, God's home movie that is in our very hands, waiting to be shown and propel us forward with anticipation and hope. People of God, be glad and rejoice forever in what God is creating right now, the kingdom where predator and prey are both transformed, the wolf and the lamb graze together, the lion and the gentle ox eat together at a table of abundance, and all, yes, indeed, all will be satisfied. Amen.